Okay, Matthew 22, and we're going to pick up in verse 23 tonight, and we'll go through the end of the chapter. Matthew 22, verse 23 says, On that same day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and questioned him, asking, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies, having no children, his brothers as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us. And the first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third, down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at His teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked Him a question, testing Him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on ask him another question. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time to meet together tonight. And Lord, we thank you for your word that you've given to us, Lord, to be a light shining in a dark place. Lord, that we might uh, come to know you, the true and the living God. <laughs> Father, we pray that tonight uh, this foremost and great commandment, Lord, would be on our mind, and that, Lord, we would, in our attitude toward your word, be found as those who are loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, heart soul, mind, and strength. Lord, seeing that our love for you is manifested in our response and in our love for your word, and in our love for your people. And Lord, may both of those be true of us tonight uh, as we gather together. So Lord, we ask for your blessing to be upon us. Lord, teach us your will. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right. Well, we're in chapter 22. And chapter 22 is devoted to these controversies that are happening to Jesus. Uh, this is the week uh, leading up to his death. Okay. So all of this is taking place uh, the week that he is going to be put to death. And when he gets to Jerusalem, he faces various challenges, controversies, conflicts with the leadership there in Jerusalem because they naturally despise him. They know that he has a great following, that there are many people that are hanging on his words. We know that they're also provoked or what is uh, provoking them to have this sour attitude toward Christ is their own jealousy. Right? They're jealous of him because... The people regard him as a prophet and not them. He teaches as one with authority and they don't. And the crowds are going after him. So they are jealous of him uh, in these ways. And so they are attempting to trip him up, to catch him in something, in some way to trap him 
so that they can expose him and smear mud on him and cause him to fall out of favor with the people and also to be executed. Okay, so that is their ultimate goal is to be done with him and to ruin his reputation and to ruin his life so that the people are not listening to him, but will instead come back to them, right? And that's what's motivating all that they are doing. And there are these various groups that are typically at odds with one another, such as the Pharisees and Sadducees, and yet they are all behaving in the same manner because though they are not in agreement on many things and they fight and squabble amongst themselves, yet in terms of their view of Christ, they are in unison. And so they have set aside whatever differences they have in order to focus on this common enemy and they're all trying to entrap him and do these types of things. That being the Sadducees, the Pharisees, another group called the Herodians, and all of them are kind of together in their hatred of Christ. And so you have these various groups that are coming up against him. The first one in verse 23 is related to the Sadducees. Verse 23 says, on that day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and questioned Him. Here, again, we are told that it is the Sadducees that are questioning Him. And these uh, make up a part or a group of the Sanhedrin, of those who are ruling over Israel at this time, the religious leadership and rule over Israel. We know, of course, that at this time, the Romans are the civil authorities over Israel, and yet many of the day-to-day -day affairs in the life of the nation are governed by the, the Sanhedrin or this uh, religious court that is there from the Jewish people. And in religious matters and in much of the day-to-day -day life, they are dealing with those things. And then the Romans are dealing with the civil matters and are over them. And as long as the taxes are being paid, there's no rebellions, no insurrections, then they're allowed to have some freedom to deal with the religious life, the cultural life there of the people. Okay, and one of these groups is the Sadducees. And the Sadducees, one of the tenets of their belief is that they say there is no resurrection. So they do not believe in the resurrection from the dead, but that our life as it is now is all that we have. And then when our life comes to an end, then that's the end of it, right? That's the end of it. And again, these are religious people, religious people who have Old Testaments, who have Bibles, who read their Bibles, and yet they've come to this conclusion that there is no resurrection. If we look over to Acts 23, Acts 23, and I've always stated that the Sadducees would be comparable to liberal Christians today, liberal Christians that you might find in higher education, these kind of uh, cultural uh, elites who think that they're smarter than all of us, and they deny many of the miraculous components of the Bible, right? And they think that that is very scholarly and wise, and they just look at the Bible as a book of men, use it for culture, use it for traditions, for heritage, but, it, but there is no life to come, so it doesn't have eternal consequences because there is no eternal life, right? That's the way that they look at it. And the Sadducees are similar to what we would say a modern-day liberal that you might find at Duke or Wake Forest, Harvard, Yale, at any of these divinity schools in these uh, places. 23.6 says, But perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. 
As he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. There the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, no angel, nor a spirit. So this spiritual dimension, spiritual aspect, they are denying these types of things. They're denying eternal life. Now, the question is, why is this the case? Is it the case that the resurrection is not taught in the Old Testament? Or is it their own unbelief? Their unbelief and their denial of what is clearly communicated in the Old Testament. Well, Daniel chapter 12, Daniel chapter 12, in verse 2, says this, Daniel 12, 2, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So there, Daniel 12, 2. Many who sleep in the dust of the ground. What is that referring to? Obviously, it's referring to death. That when we die, our body is buried in the ground, and the Bible refers to death sometimes as sleep because of future resurrection. Just like... We go to sleep at night, and then we awake the next day. So also, this life we will be put to bed, or we will go to sleep when we are buried into the ground, but we will awake one day at the day of resurrection. And here, the day of resurrection is touching to both the righteous and the wicked, right? Because some to everlasting life, others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So here, Daniel clearly teaches eternal life, that there is an everlasting life for the righteous and there is an everlasting existence of torment and contempt and disgrace for the wicked and that all men will die and that all men will awaken. They will be resurrected. Otherwise, how can this take place without there being a resurrection? So clearly, and this is just one place in the Old Testament, the Old Testament teaches that there is a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Also, in John chapter 11, this belief was held by some during this time. So it was not that the Sadducees represented what was generally true of all the people, and that no one up until this time knew about or believed in the resurrection of the dead, or eternal life, and it's not until the New Testament that these truths are made known and become prevalent in the common doctrine and theology of the people. John eleven twenty three. This is Jesus speaking to Martha after the death of Lazarus. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. So this is Martha before any of the New Testament has been written, and she knows that there is going to be a resurrection on the last day, on the day of judgment, and that when this resurrection occurs, her brother will rise, that he will rise. Now Jesus is talking that he's going to rise in closer proximity. Right now, today, I'm going to raise him 
from the dead. She's thinking about the future day of resurrection, and Jesus is going to give to them an emblem or an illustration of that future resurrection and show that He has the power of that resurrection by raising the brother there. So, the Sadducees then deny that there is a resurrection. Now, this is a very important doctrine. Can someone be saved without believing in the resurrection? It's impossible for someone to be saved, to understand the gospel, to understand salvation, to understand God. How can we live to God if we don't believe in the resurrection? Right? This is impossible. So this is a very important doctrine. We must believe this doctrine, yet they deny it. They deny it, and now they're going to come and present this scenario to Jesus using the Bible to bolster their argument in order to show him to be a fool. Because Jesus is clearly teaching resurrection. He's teaching resurrection from start to finish of his earthly ministry. It's all about resurrection, right? If there is no resurrection, then we are to be pitied above all people, right? Because what's the point of everything we do if there is no life to come? The whole basis of the gospel is preparing us for the life to come. And the Christian life is about living for the life to come. So the Christianity is built upon the hope of resurrection, and without it, then Jesus is himself a false teacher because he's been teaching it. And as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if there is no resurrection, then we're found misrepresenting God. He would be misrepresenting God. That's the angle that they're taking. They're trying to prove that he is a false teacher and misrepresenting God because Jesus is clearly teaching resurrection, and yet they say there is no resurrection. And they think that this argument is an insurmountable argument that he will not be able to overcome. That's why they're bringing it up to him. They are sorely mistaken. 24. Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Here, they're quoting from Deuteronomy 25. Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6 there was a provision in the law. Though generally speaking, it was forbidden for a man to marry his brother's wife, but there was a, an exception to this provision. And that was concerning um, the need for there to be a redeemer. A redeemer who will have children, a, a son, on behalf of the deceased brother, so that his name is not blotted out from Israel. Okay? And the, the best example of this in the Bible is the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is all about this provision, this law, and it being made manifest in Boaz and Ruth. Okay? Deuteronomy 25, verse 5. When brothers live together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. So this would then keep them in terms of inheritance, in terms of the land and their uh, allotment of land. It would keep their name from being blotted out, but that they might have a descendant to carry their name, to inherit their possessions, and to perpetuate their name throughout Israel, right? As the son of this man. 
but the man died without having any children. So the wife is to marry the brother. If he has a brother, then if there is no brother, there's a sequence of relatives and whatever is next closest to kin, it would be his obligation or responsibility to his brother to marry this widow, this, this, this wife, and to have children on his behalf. Okay, so this is the law they're bringing up. And clearly, that's taught in the Bible, right? This is taught in the book or the law of Moses. Now they present in verse 25 a hypothetical situation, okay? Typically, when we're dealing with biblical issues, yeah. and people bring up hypotheticals, right? You just got to get rid of them, right? Because people love to do this. And they, they, this and that, and this, you know, and it's like, why are we talking about this, right? What bearing does this have on anything? But people love to do this, okay? And you see what kind of people there are. Now there were seven brothers with us. The first married and died, having no children, left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third, down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. Here, this is the hypothetical situation. The woman marries a brother. The brother dies. The second brother marries her. He dies. The third, the fourth, all the way down to the seventh. All of them marry her, and none of them ever have children with her. Then the woman dies. So in the life to come, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Now here, their hypothetical situation is built upon certain assumptions that they believe to be true. And these assumptions in their mind prove that there is no resurrection. And this assumption is that in the life to come, we will marry. We will be married to our spouse in this life, in the life to come. That is the assumption that they're bringing forward, that there is a one-to-one -one correlation in our existence in this life and our existence in the life to come, that this is the way it will be. All the brothers have an equal claim to the woman because all of them were legitimately married to her under the law of Moses, and she had children with none of them. Had she had children with one of them, then that brother, we would say, well, he has the upper hand, right? Because at least they had children, and so there's greater weight to the marriage. But in terms of legality, all of them were legally married. All of them had her. She had children with none of them. So in the resurrection, whose wife will she belong to? Because they all have a legitimate right to have her, okay? Is she going to be married to seven brothers? Well, that can't be the case. Well, who's she going to be married to? In, in their mind, this proves that there is no resurrection, you see how stupid this is? This is the way people are. Okay, then verse 29. But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures, nor the power of God. Right. Here, their assumptions are wrong. This is the problem. Their underlying assumptions are all wrong because they don't know either the power of God, nor do they understand the Scriptures. This dilemma that they presented in their own mind proves that there's no resurrection but it's based upon faulty assumptions. There is no dilemma to this scenario if they knew the Scriptures and if they knew the power of God. They are deficient in two areas. No they don't understand the power of God. They don't understand who God is, the purpose of this life, what's going to happen on the day of resurrection, nor do they understand the Bible. 
They're not reading the scriptures clearly. We already read Daniel chapter 12. They're not paying attention to that, but they're also not paying close attention to other scriptures as well. So they do not understand these things. So verse 30. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Here, verse 30 deals with their deficiency in understanding the power of God. You don't understand the power of God. The body of man will, by the power of God, be transformed on the day of resurrection. The way we are now, our physical life now, our existence in this present world, where we go from childhood to old age and then we expire and we die. That's not going to be the way it is in the life to come. Right. Right? That's the problem. Our physical existence in the life to come will not be the same as our physical existence in this present life. The body will be different. It will be transformed by the power of God. Again, their fault is they assume a one-to-one -one correlation between this life and the life to come. But that's not the case. That's not what the Bible teaches. And they're not bringing in the power of God. And what God is able to do to our bodies on the day of resurrection. And what God will do to our bodies on the day of resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. This is the passage. Not that it's the only passage in the Bible. But this is the passage in the Bible that deals with the resurrection more succinctly, clear, you know, it, it deals with all these aspects, these tenets of the resurrection. So if we're talking about the resurrection, this is the first passage we should go to. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll pick up in verse 35 because here the apostle is dealing with the same thing, right? People are scoffing at the resurrection because they're, they're talking about, well, what's the body even going to be like in the day of resurrection? And they're denying the resurrection of the dead. And so he's rebuking them, showing how foolish they are in their thinking. That in, in the, again, here it's the same thing. They don't understand the power of God. 15 verse 35. But someone will say, How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool! That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as He wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of man, and another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead." It is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also as it is written, The first man, Adam, became a, li a living soul. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth. Earthly, the second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. As is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. 
there, the body is changed by the power of God on the day of resurrection, proving this objection to be very foolish. What kind of body will they be raised with, right? If you've been dead and buried in the ground for all of these years, are you going to be raised as a uh, zombie, as a, as a corpse, you know, as a skeleton? Right? What's going to happen on the day of resurrection? Not considering that God has the power to undo the effects of death. God has the power not only to undo it and bring us back to the state we are now, He has the power to advance that state to an even greater state, even greater than what Adam was in the Garden of Eden. Because whose image will we bear on the day of resurrection? The image of Christ. We will have the same body that Christ has, which is described as this body that is spiritual. Right? It's imperishable. It is glorious. It is a powerful body. It is a spiritual body. Not meaning it's a spirit in that it doesn't have flesh and bone, but it is a spiritual body, one that is able to commune with God, one that is free from sin, free from sin, free from death, and this by the power of God. God will do this, and that body is called an imperishable body, meaning it will never die. We know, according to Romans 6, that Christ being raised from the dead can never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. He cannot die again as a man because death has no dominion over Him. Well, what will be true of us on the day of resurrection? Death will have no dominion over us. We will not be able to die again because death has no dominion over us after the resurrection. We will be completely set free. We have been set free in part now, but we will still die physically unless Christ returns. But then when we are raised, those bodies will be free from any impact, enslavement to sin or death, completely free. And those bodies will be equipped for eternal life. They'll never die. They'll live forever. They are imperishable bodies. Well, will marriage and rearing and raising children be necessary in the life to come? No. Marriage is for this life because of the necessity of having children to repopulate generation after generation after generation and because of the way, our, the way God created the world, which was with two people, Adam and then Eve, and the intent was those two, and then to populate the world from those two. So there was the necessity of the man and the woman coming together in marriage and then having children in order to subdue the earth. And then also, when death enters into the world, there is the necessity of having children, because if we don't have any children, what's going to happen? The world's going to end, right? It's going to end in terms of humanity. There will be no people, right, if we don't repopulate and have children so that one generation is supplanted or replaced by the other generation. And this goes on generation after generation after generation as long as this present world continues as it is. But in the life to come, is that necessary? No, because it's a fixed number of the elect who will inhabit the new heavens and new earth, and they will live forever, so there's no need for marriage or for repopulation. And that's why he says we will be like the angels in heaven. Not meaning that we're going to have wings, not that angels have <laughs> wings, not meaning that we're going to be spirit beings, because angels are spirit beings, but meaning the angels do not marry and give in marriage. The angels don't repopulate. They don't have children, right? They don't do that. They are a fixed number of angels 
and that's the way it will be in the life to come. A fixed number of the righteous on the new heavens and new earth, and there's no need for marriage because there's no need to have children and to raise a family and all the other benefits that marriage provides for us in this life. Not good for man to be alone, right? It's good for him to have a wife as a helper in this present life, but that's not needed in the life to come. So marriage is designed for this present world, but marriage will not be necessary in the life to come because of the bodies that we will have there and the existence that we will have there. So it's only for this present life. They don't understand this. And that's why they think there's going to be, they, they're assuming marriage will continue in the life to come. But that's not the case at all. So they don't understand the power of God. Secondly, he says in verse 31 and 32, you don't understand the scriptures either. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You don't know the scriptures. You don't know what was said to you by God. By God. Not that all of the scriptures isn't God speaking, but here this quote is specifically God speaking to Moses. To Moses there in the burning bush. Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3 verse 6. Also, this is a good example of reading the Bible carefully. Reading the Bible carefully. Because we need to do that. And this is a careful observation. Jesus isn't reading into the Bible, right? So we don't want to do that. We don't want to find things where there are no things or make up things when they're not there or when it's silent. But in this case, he's pointing out the fact that when God says this to Moses, notice the tense in which it is said, right? The tense in which it is said. Not past tense, but it is said in the present tense. Verse 6, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now, again, the, the importance to this verse is when was this said? Well, obviously, it's being said to Moses. And when was it said in proximity to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Well, Moses lived over 400 years after at least Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, during that period of time of the patriarchs. Hundreds of years have passed, and what has happened to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? They're all dead. All of them have died, and they have been buried in the ground. Yet, God does not say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, meaning that I continue to be their God down to this very day. 400 years after their death, I am still their God, which assumes what? That Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive in some sense. Right? Not that they're physically alive, their bodies have died and been buried, but their existence has continued because their souls have gone to be with the Lord. Right? Their body died and was buried in the ground, but their souls have continued to live forever. And in this sense, they are still, He is still their God because their souls are still worshiping God. That's why He says, I am their God in this way. Their body died, but the soul was gathered to God. Genesis 25, verses 7 and 8. Genesis 
Genesis 25, 7 and 8. These are all the years of Abraham's life that he lived, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man and satisfied with life. And he was gathered to his people. Then his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite facing Mamre. Here it says he breathed his last, meaning he died. He was gathered to his people and then he was buried. Well, what was buried and what was gathered? Well, his body was buried. His soul was gathered to his people, meaning his soul continued to live on forever, right? Because the soul is immortal, right? It does not perish or it does not cease to exist. His soul continued. And if his soul continues and God created us with both body and soul, then what does this anticipate? Does it not anticipate resurrection? The necessity of his body to rise one day and his body to be reunited with his soul. Right? That's what Jesus is teaching here. Because when God created man in Genesis 1 and 2, he created man with both a body and a soul, and God declared that both body and soul was very good. And so God will raise the body and reunite it with the soul. And that will happen on the day of resurrection. Right? It necessitates the resurrection. Okay, then verse 33, the crowds heard this. They were astonished at his teaching. Naturally so. They should be, right? Because this is, this is solid teaching, right? This is very good. And he is confounding their foolishness. Okay, then verse 34. But when the Pharisees <clears throat> heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Here, the Pharisees, seeing that the Sadducees had been unsuccessful and that they had been silenced, and likely assuming that they are superior to the Sadducees, said, well, they couldn't silence him, but we would be able to. So we're going to go and test him, and we'll ask him a question as well. So they gather themselves together. They come up with some question, something that they believe is going to stump him, and then one of them comes and presents this question to Jesus, it says, in order to test him, right? Which we should, you know, you have to learn. Learn from other people's mistakes. The Sadducees did this and it didn't go well with him. So just be quiet, right? And walk away and leave it alone. But they don't learn from their mistakes. The question, teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? Now we know that there are many commandments in the Bible. Many commandments in the Bible, many commandments in the law of Moses. And they're asking, which of these is the great commandment? What's the greatest commandment there in the law of Moses? And they'll try to use this in some way to confound him, confound him in, in some way. So that's what they're asking. What is the great one? What is the great one? What is the most important one there in the law? Now, in 23, 23, Matthew 23, 23, Jesus does concede that there is a distinction we need to make when we're reading the law that there are weightier provisions of the law. So this question is not in itself um, an illegitimate question. Right? We should be looking at and reading the Bible 
in making these kinds of distinctions so that things are in their proper order, right? Not that we should neglect things, but we do have to see things in the proper relationship to one another so that we are practicing them in the correct way. Because if we begin to focus on the less weighty matters of the law to the expense of the weighty matters of the law, everything's upside down. We need to focus on the weightier measure, measures and then let the less weighty measures find their place in context with the weightier measures of the law. Okay, that's what Jesus is teaching. 23.23, and this was a problem with the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. There, again, no one wants to drink a gnat, but if, you, you don't want to drink a gnat, right, when you're having your Dr. Pepper, a gnat falls in it, it just ruins the whole thing. But if a camel falls in it, it would really ruin it, right, because you don't want to drink either one of them. But of the two, the camel is the greater animal. It's better to swallow a gnat than to swallow a camel. And this was a problem with the scribes and Pharisees, that they were focused on these less weighty matters of the law to the expense of the weightier provisions of the law. They're neglecting justice, mercy, and faithfulness, while at the same time convincing themselves that they're very godly people because they tithe on mint, dill, and cumin. They tithe very meticulously down to the very most minute, small things in their garden. They're tithing on them while at the same time neglecting justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And then concluding that they're very righteous before God. This is what they are doing. So this is happening there amongst them. So they're bringing this question to Jesus. So he answers them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here, Jesus says the great commandment, the greatest commandment, the foremost commandment, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the chief commandment. And Jesus is right on this. This is the chief commandment of the Bible. The whole Bible could be whittled down to this one phrase, love the Lord your God. Every verse in the Bible is teaching us in one way or another how to love the Lord our God. Everything is reduced to that commandment, to love God. That is the most important commandment. Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6. He quotes from the law of Moses. And this is dealing with worship of God. Worship of God. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So here we have one God, and He is the Lord our God. And as a result of this, we should love Him with all the heart, with all the soul, and with all of our might. This is what we should do. And this is the sum total of what it is to worship and to live unto God, is to love God supremely. 
by believing and thinking correctly about God according to His Word, by being reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, right, by living a godly life in subjection to His commandments. Everything we do is related to this in one way or another. The, uh, the, the doctrine of the atonement is teaching us how to love God. The doctrine of the hypostatic union, of Jesus having a, uh, 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 being fully God and fully man in one person, that is teaching us how to love God. Right? The doctrine of election is teaching us how to love God. Everything is teaching us how to love God. The Eighth Commandment is teaching us how to love God. The Tenth Commandment is teaching us how to love God. The First Commandment is teaching us how to love God. Whatever we are doing, all of it is reduced to this one great commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all of your being. And every sin that we ever commit is touching this commandment in one way or another. We are not loving God in the proper way whenever we sin against Him, whether that be a sin of unbelief, some doctrinal error, or whether that be some moral failing that we have, all of it is failing ultimately, primarily, to love God. This is why in Psalm 51, when David is making his confession for his sin that he committed with Bathsheba and against Uriah the Hittite and against the whole nation, he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He doesn't mean that he didn't sin against other people. He means it in the chief principal way. Primarily, I have sinned against you. Because primarily, whatever I've done to other people, ultimately, my sin is against you because the great commandment is that I should love you. And I failed to love you and to honor you in the proper way. The second commandment, Jesus puts this in for extra measure, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Which is also... Uh, in, embodied in the first commandment, but also it is set aside for further clarification, right? For further clarification, and all of the law and prophets are reduced to these two commandments. In one way or another, the Bible is teaching us primarily how to love God, and then also how to love our neighbor as ourselves. And this is what we should be focused on. Romans 13, 8 to 10. Romans 13... Verses 8 to 10 says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Right here, again, the focus is on the second commandment, the second table. He doesn't mean that loving neighbor is all that we're required to do, and that it doesn't matter if we love God. Well, of course he doesn't mean that. But here, he's focusing on loving neighbor. He's already focused on loving God in chapters 1 through 12 too. Now he's teaching how to love our neighbor as ourself, and we should do both of those things. Okay, and then in verse 40, he says, On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. All of the law and the prophets, and then all of the apostles, the New Testament, are reduced to these two heads, love of God and love of neighbor. And they are teaching us in one way or another how to love God and to love our neighbor. And that is what the Bible is focused on. And this lawyer in, in Mark's... Uh, parallel account in Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, 28. 
says, One of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, What commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. So there, this lawyer, in follow-up to this, he agrees. You are right. Everything that you said is right and true. There is only one God. And to love God and to love the neighbor is much more than burnt offerings and sacrifices. So isn't that the same as what we read in 23, 23 and 24, when Jesus is talking about the weightier and the less weighty provisions of the law? That these things are more, are more than burnt offerings and sacrifices, not meaning that we should neglect in their day burnt offerings and sacrifices. They were commanded to do those. But doing those things without a heart of love for God and without loving your neighbor, you're just doing rituals that are no benefit or value at all. We might say the same in our own day, that to love God and to love our neighbor is more than taking communion, right? Is more than being baptized. Yes, we need to do those things and we're commanded to do them. But if love of God and love of neighbor are absent from our Christian faith and our walk with God, then baptism and communion are utterly worthless. They don't do us any good or benefit at all. So the Bible is making this distinction between ritual law and between moral law. And the moral, the ritual without the moral is worthless, right? We, we have to do both of those. Okay, then verse 41. Now the Pharisees were gathered together. Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. Here, now Jesus is going to present a question to them, right? Which is fair. They asked him a question. Now he will reciprocate and ask them a question. And this is going to get at the heart of their hatred of him. Why they reject him and why they wanting to kill him. Okay, that's what he's dealing with here. He asked them this question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now, the Christ, the Christ. He says it in that way, in not referring, uh, of course, he knows that he is the Christ, and he believes that and is teaching that, but he's saying it in this general or generic way. The Christ. You believe, Pharisees, that the Old Testament predicts the coming Christ, that the Christ is coming into the world. This would be like John chapter 4, verse 25. There, the woman at the well, when Jesus is dialoguing with her, she says, we know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. There, a common woman, a Samaritan woman, who was at that point an unbeliever, she knew and believed and understood that the Christ was coming into the world. And that when the Christ was revealed, he would be the one who would make known to them all things related to the worship of God. In this debate that was going on between the Jews and the Samaritans about the place of worship. 
Also, in Luke chapter 1, verse 69, in Luke 1, 69 there, Zechariah, whenever he is praising God, he mentions that God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. The horn of salvation is the Christ, God's anointed one. So the Old Testament clearly taught that the Christ or the Messiah, the anointed one, was coming into the world and that this Christ would be the son of David. So Jesus asked them about the Christ and whose son will he be? And they answer that he will be the son of David. And are they correct in their answer? Yes. Absolutely. The, it's clearly taught, 2 Samuel chapter 7, but also other passages. But 2 Samuel chapter 7 is the primary passage where this is first taught, but then it is confirmed in other places that the Christ would be the son of David, that this is true. Okay, then Jesus asked them the question. Then he said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Here, Jesus quotes from Psalm 110, verse 1, right, which is a psalm that was commonly believed and understood to be messianic. That psalm, David is not talking about himself. Obviously, he's not talking about himself. In the verse that is quoted, he's referring to this dialogue between the Lord and his Lord, right? The Lord and my Lord. So there are two people in Psalm 110, verse 1. There is the Lord. And there is my Lord. And the Lord is talking to my Lord. So unless God is schizophrenic, looking in the mirror, talking to himself, it doesn't make any sense, right? If the Lord is talking to my Lord, how many persons have to be present for that to take place? At least two, right? There at least has to be two persons to be present. And David refers to both of them with what title? Lord. Lord. Lord and my Lord. Well, if the one is not divine, then that's blasphemy, right? Wouldn't that be blasphemy to refer to someone in the same sentence as with the same name and title as God the Father, right? That would be blasphemy. That would be idolatrous to say such things. And notice that David says this in what? In the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who taught David inspired him to say this. So if David is saying this in the Spirit, also this assumes that they knew and believed in the Holy Spirit, right. right? Otherwise this would make no sense. If David is saying this in the Holy Spirit, is it possible for David to be lying? No. For him to be mistaken? No, because the Spirit is the Spirit of truth. He can't lie, right? It's impossible. So David is saying this in the Spirit. He is talking about the Lord and he's talking about my Lord. That is David's Lord. And again, this is a passage commonly believed to be messianic. The Jews all took this passage to be about the Christ, that the my Lord in this passage is referring to the Christ. Well, how can this be the case, right? Because, again, He is the Son of David, and He is the Lord of David, right? If this person who is my Lord in Psalm 110.1, is the Christ, and that person is the son of David, then how can David's son also be David's Lord? 
that is the dilemma that Jesus is presenting to them. And what is the solution, right? What is the only conclusion that one can draw? Well, the same conclusion of John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 30. John 1, 30. John the Baptist speaking. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Now, in terms of their humanity, who existed first? John or Jesus? Who was born first? Well, John was born before Jesus. John was three months older than Jesus. So in terms of humanity, in terms of their birth as men, John existed before Jesus. But John testifies that Jesus existed before him. And in what way did Jesus exist before John the Baptist? as the Son of God, the eternal God. He has eternal existence with the Father from before the creation of the world. So as a man, he came after John, but as the Son of God, he existed before John. Also, the same argument in John chapter 8. John eight fifty six, And this is the same argument David is making in Psalm 110. Why he calls him my Lord, right? It's all built upon this belief and understanding that the Christ would be both fully God and fully man in one person. So there are certain things that are true of his humanity, and there are other things true of his deity. As a man, he's the son of David, but as divine, he is David's Lord, the Lord of David. John chapter 8, verse 56 to 59. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Before Abraham was born, he says, I am. I existed before Abraham. And this was some 1,800 years at, from this point in time. Well, how did Jesus exist before Abraham? As who? as the Son of God, because He has a divine nature and He has a human nature. That's why this makes sense, because the Christ is taught in the Old Testament, in Psalm 110, verse 1, to be both fully God and fully man, that He will have two natures. Therefore, is it blasphemy for Jesus to claim equality with the Father? Of course not. No. If He's divine... If he has the same divine nature as the Father, it's not blasphemy for him to call God his Father. It's not blasphemy for him to claim equality with him. But why are they wanting to kill him? Because he's claiming equality with God. That's the point he's making here. Why are you guys giving me a hard time all the time? Why are you harassing me? Why are you trying to kill me saying I'm a blasphemer when the Old Testament that you say you believe clearly teaches that the Christ would be both fully God and fully man. And now the Christ has appeared, and you want to kill me because I'm claiming to be God. But this is clearly taught in the Old Testament in Psalm 110, verse 1. John 10, 31. John 10, 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. 
You being a man, make yourself out to be God. What doctrine do they not believe in? The person of Christ, right? The person of Christ. The two natures of Christ. That he would be both fully God and fully man in one person. That God would take on human flesh and dwell among us. That's what they don't believe. And yet that is what is in their presence. The person of Christ. And David knew this. David knew and taught that the Christ would be both fully God and fully man. In Psalm 110 verse 1, which they all believe to be about the Christ, and they all know that the Christ is the son of David, Psalm 110.1 is emphasizing the deity of Christ. Because would God the Father ever tell David or one of his merely physical descendants who is only a man to sit at his right hand until he made all of his enemies a footstool for his feet? According to Hebrews chapter 1, which we've done previously, would God the Father ever even say that to an angel? No, he never said that to any of the angels. He never said that to any man. Who did he say it to? Only to Jesus Christ. He said it to him because he possesses a divine nature. Otherwise, God would be blaspheming. God would be breaking his own law if he elevated a man to this position because no man can have that position except one. One who is both fully God and fully man, the man Christ Jesus. Psalm 110 is emphasizing the deity of Christ. Yet the Jews want to kill Jesus because he's claiming equality with God. So the Old Testament clearly taught that the Christ would be the Son of God clothed in human flesh. But they're, they're not believing this doctrine, though they claim to be strict followers of the Bible. Then verse 46, No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day ask him another question. They can't, he always answers them and confounds them, and they can't answer him. And then they say, let's just not ask him any more questions. We'll just kill him, kill him instead, because that's the only thing we can do. We can't win against this guy. So, and again, these are doctrines that are essential to believe in order to have salvation. If we don't believe in the true person of Christ, how can we have our sins forgiven? We can't benefit from his work if we don't believe in his person. And he had to be both fully God and fully man in order to accomplish our redemption. Both of those are essential to his person, and they don't believe this. Though they believe in the resurrection, the Pharisees do at least, according to Acts 23. But how can the resurrection take place if Jesus doesn't die on the cross for our sins and be raised for our justification? And how can he bear our sins if he's not both fully God and fully man in the one person? These are essential, necessary, for our salvation. And they are also clearly taught in the Old Testament that they claim to love, but they disbelieve. So, okay, well, we'll stop there and we'll pick up in 23 next week. 23 and then 24, that's the, that's the fun chapter, right? Everyone, I don't know, maybe you're not. But 24 is where it gets, uh, you know, it's the more controversial, difficult to interpret and understand passage in the book of Matthew. So, but we will do our best, and hopefully it will be clear, uh, clear and not cloudy.